0: For some you'll be going, oh, I've been kind of having fun. And some it's like, woohoo, glad to be rid of that. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, being as the end of our uh, series there on love, sex, and marriage and so on, we should expect the ending to be, and they all lived. They all lived happily ever after. That's the ending we've come to expect from love stories the world over: the prince and the princess have overcome all evil. Uh, the queen, the evil queen, has been vanquished. Her anger and her spells are no more. Peace has been restored to the kingdom. And our happy couple, well, she's swooning in his manly arms beneath his manly chin. Uh, the birds are singing. In fact, they're braiding her hair. The sun sets and the story ends with the sure and certain knowledge that this is true love which means there'll never be any arguments, Uh, there'll be no disappointments, there'll be no troubles, and not even bad hair days. Um, Because these two were destined for one another, they're soulmates and they're living happily ever after. And it's not just children's fairy tales that say that kind of thing. That kind of romance and that kind of ending fills our screens, our books and our dreams. That one Perfect relationship which is going to end all of our problems. And it's not just the hopelessly romantic tweens that are yearning for it. I talk to 20-something-year-olds and 40-something-year-olds and 60-something-year-olds and even 80-something-year-olds who are still waiting for that to happen, who want it to happen, who think it can. And not just the singles, but the marrieds are thinking, ah, oh, where's this perfect relationship and maybe the one I'm in is not it. And that kind of thinking can be extremely damaging. Because when we start to believe the fairy tales can truly be our reality, it, it creates hopes and dreams that are extremely unrealistic and hopelessly unattainable. And so it exacerbates the loneliness and the emptiness that many singles feel who have sold the lie that having a relationship and getting married is just going to solve all their problems. And it fuels the discontent that many married people feel. And it can get far worse than that as we're going to see today. Now you might conclude if you've been here the last few weeks with what we've read so far of the Song of Songs that it really is just another fairy tale uh, painting the same old unattainable fantasy, especially after last week's talk. And you might want to go back and listen to that about weddings and true love. Uh, And this is just another happily ever after story. But I want to say that couldn't be further from the truth. And while there is happiness and contentment and joy in the Song of Songs and in marriage in general, uh, the book's very realistic that there are problems and there's discontent. And I say that because the Song of Songs, in its own poetical way, raises some of the troubles that real relationships can and will face. And perhaps that is the most curious thing about the Song of Songs, that it keeps holding up these ideals of... Love and relationship and beauty that we've been talking about these last few weeks. But if, you, if you've read along the book yourself or been in a Bible study that's been reading through it these last few weeks, you'll have noticed it keeps dropping in little bombshells into, of reality which make it far from the Hollywood love story. And when they come, they really stand out and they're very confronting and no more than the one we're looking at today in chapter 5. But I say that's good. That's good because what we need is reality. We don't need a fairy story. We need, as God's people or as inquirers, to know what to expect, how to cope, and, uh, and how to deal with it when there is disappointment, when there's loneliness, when there's distrust, when there's manipulation and even betrayal, and how how to work at our marriages so they might glorify God in the midst of it all because that's what life's all about, glorifying God. And perhaps also how to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ or those of the younger generations as they go through the struggles of being both sinners and saints in a relationship in a broken world because this isn't just for married people to hear. This is for all of us to consider how we might encourage those around us or those who will one day be married or want that. So this morning we're going to see how the Song of Songs raises some of the troubles of marriage. Now, given it's poetry, I'm not much of a poet uh, or you know a student of English poetry or anything like that, but I want to say poetry is not hard and fast rules. It's not uh, just going, kind of, this is what you should think about marriage, this, this and this and this. Here's the five things God wants you to know. What it does is raise in kind of picture language and in, in story and imagery some of the things, so you'll go away and reflect on it and on your own life. And I think as we as we start to reflect on what we read today, you'll go, oh yeah, that is kind of like my life. Yeah, I might not have been beaten up by the city guards, but there are troubles in relationship that I need to face. And it's good to go away and think through them and how we're going if we're married or what marriage could really be like if we're not, or for those who are divorced or widowed, you know, why it is you've ended up in the situations that you've ended up in? We need reality. So, song of songs raises the troubles of marriage, and we're going to reflect on them, uh, why they come, and where they can lead to. Uh, but then we're going to reflect a bit deeper on that real sort of true love that David introduced us to last week in chapter eight, which is nothing like what the world is saying about giddy emotions and sweaty palms and you know pounding hearts. And then we're going to finish up by moving on to what I'm going to call God's keys to success in marriage. Uh, In fact, not just marriage, but in every sort of relationship, but family or friendship, church life, and even in our relationship with God himself. And so whether we're married, single, divorced, widowed, this is stuff we all need to know. So let's get into Song of Songs and the pain of relationships and what's incredible in the movement of the song is how soon, just like the story we just heard, how soon after the wedding day and the honeymoon that the problems begin. And those problems include frustration, loss and loneliness. Now, of course, there are other problems that come up in marriage than those, uh, than just those. And we'll touch on some of them as we go. But we're going to focus on these very common issues which every marriage faces and which Solomon in his song raises for us. But before we get to the troubles, just to recap the story so far for those who haven't been here. If you come back to this, think back to the start of the Song of Songs, it actually started off on a sour note. With the woman of the story who's called the Beloved in the, the NIV Bibles we've got here. Um, she's expressing at the start of the book her unfulfilled desires to be with this handsome young man she's admired from afar, but who she has supposed uh, has no idea she even exists. And then there's her jealousy of all the young women who are fawning over him and you know, who seem to be occupying his attention. Uh, but then we smiled as, as they came together. We chuckled through some of their lovey-dovey words to each other and their descriptions of each other's hair and teeth and, you know, boobs and all the rest, Um, we cheered as they finally came to their wedding day in chapter three, and then we're invited, though not in a creepy or pervy way, to hear about their discovery of each other's bodies on their honeymoon in chapter four. And we left off in chapter five, verse one, with the lover saying, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey, to which I have drunk my wine and my milk. You know, poetic way of saying, we're getting it on. <laughs> but it's a cry of intoxication and joy that, that they, that, uh, and their intimacy is met with the approval of friends and from God Himself that what they're doing is right and good and proper and wonderful. Uh, at the end of verse one. Eat, O oh, friends, and drink, drink your fellow O oh, lovers. Uh, and it's kind of like when uh, you know the the, the the marriage car is driving off, and they've got all the cans strapped to the back, tinkling down the road. I don't know if anyone actually does that. Anyone? Yeah, no, been to a wedding like that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, that? And everyone's cheering because uh, they know what's about to happen, right? They're going on their honeymoon, yoo you know? Uh And far from being something to hide or something dirty or evil, uh, we're celebrating an incredible gift from God that they now have in each other and it's glorious in the context of marriage. But just as we hit that high point... What's the very next thing that happens? Eat, oh, drink, uh, yeah, eat, o oh, lovers, and drink your fill. And then we get this incredibly depressing incident that we read in chapter five, where there's embarrassment, there are mixed messages, there's rejection, and it even ends in violence. It's the woman talking, the beloved, uh, Mrs. Peace, as we've seen, Mrs. Shalom, um, but she's not at peace at all. And whether it's a vivid dream turned nightmare or whether she's describing something that's actually happened, it's a little bit hard to work out, but either way, it's pretty disturbing. It starts off with her lying alone in her bed late one night. Why he's not there, we're not told. It could be their normal sleeping arrangements, that he's got a separate room, that sort of living together in the queen-size bed is a fairly modern invention. Or maybe he's just been up late watching the football. But whatever the case, there's a knock at the door, her bedroom door, and he's in the mood. Verse 2, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my, my hair with the dampness of the night. And so he's dead keen, he's, he's here for some action, but she's not interested at all. Listen to her response. I've just taken off my robe, how am I going to put it on again? I've just washed my feet, must I soil them again? Uh, and you can imagine the kind of modern equivalence of that, can't you? Uh, Are you kidding? <laughs> it's so late, I'm so tired. You know, I'm just... I've just I've just got this cosy little patch in my bed, I'm just right, you want, and you want me to get up? You know, I just put my face on and the cucumbers are in the eyes. <laughs> um, or in Alice's case, I've just put the mouth guard in that my dentist told me I had to wear, which I hate, but it takes a whole lot of kind of cleansing and stuff and you want me to take that out and then I'll have to all that again? <laughs> you know, give it a break! <laughs> and so our woman yells out to him at the door but he's not put off by her initial protest and his persistence starts to pay off. She relents and at first she thinks, oh, all right. Um, But as she thinks it over, she starts to get a little bit excited and so verse four, my lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. Uh, and oh, it's all about to happen. But then it all goes pear-shaped. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. And my heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called to him, but he did not answer. And so for whatever reason, maybe because you know, she was too slow in responding or he's just thinking, ah, I'm tired too. Maybe she's right. Uh, he's gone. He's given up. And she's left all alone. She's worked up with a mixture of confusion about where he's gone and also agitation that he's not going to make good on what he was offering. Now, it's not the first time that something like this has happened. Back in chapter 3 and verse 1, she'd been hoping for something to happen very similar back then, but at that time it was inappropriate for their relationship. They weren't yet married. And it was just her fantasising. He hadn't come and offered. She was just going, I wish he was here. And she'd gotten up and gone looking for him in a very similar fashion. But So just as in chapter 3, she now gets up and goes outside the house into the city late at night uh, uh, in her nightie. She's gone looking for him. But unlike in chapter 3 where the city guards, the, the police, uh, find her. They took care of her and led her safely home. Here they now turn on her with some violence. And so verse 7, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds of the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen on the walls. And that's pretty rough stuff. And and maybe there's a couple of possible explanations for their awful behaviour. Um, perhaps the first time they'd seen her. She was a young, unmarried woman late at night, sort of, you know, maybe they thought she was running away from home or something and uh, they'd cared for her, but what's this married woman now doing running around the streets uh, scantily clad? Uh, perhaps they've come to the conclusion that she's a woman of ill repute. Um, perhaps it's all just her imagination running wild of what would happen if she did run around outside in her nightie. And I think it's deliberately vague on the details because Solomon's not really telling the story of a particular man and a particular woman and the unfortunate thing that happened on one particular night. That's not the point. He's opening up for us the troubles that we face. He's giving us a poetic glimpse of the kinds of frustrations, loss and loneliness that even the happily married feel from time to time. There's frustration. You know, the frustration of having someone else in your life who has their own needs and desires which don't necessarily gel with your own. Uh, at this point at 8 o'clock, someone started chuckling. they're "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, stuff, and might get a bit of that. Uh, <laughs> and that happens not only in terms of sexual intimacy, although that's one obvious place we can feel it and the woman describes that so well, uh, all kinds of things can affect uh, whether one or both parties are in the mood, uh, one or other might have a stronger sex drive than the other one, uh, it might be up and down depending on times of month and life circumstances. Uh, there's the fact that from time to time sex is difficult or even painful for one member, often the woman, depending on life circumstances. There's also the fact that so much of our sexual desire for the other person is tied up with how life and the relationship are going in general. You know, and sometimes one person just wants a good night's sleep and they've put on their face and the cucumbers and it's a lot of effort to undo it all and get in the mood. But it's not just in relation to sexual intimacy, is it? There's all kinds of times when there's unmet desires and expectations and differing priorities on, on things like time, on money, uh, on holidays. There are all kinds of things that can go wrong. Uh, and overall, that there are circumstances in life which may have led to uh, you know extreme lack of sleep, uh, work pressures, uh, illness, lack of communication, arguments. Uh, kids are exhausting. Uh, Work pressures can really take their toll on one or other member of the couple Uh, and perhaps the two just aren't making time for each other or being particularly considerate with one another's feelings or with their bodies. And all kinds of things can result from that, right? You can end up feeling like your housemates rather than lovers Uh, or perhaps worse, you can end up feeling very, very alone even though you're supposed to be married, uh, and lots of people feel that you know the other person is just not there for me anymore emotionally or sometimes physically. They're, that's not to say there aren't times when you want you, know, you want to be left alone, just like this lady at the start of the passage. And personal space is a is a good and right thing that we need to give each other. But there's the flip side, and by the end she's feeling very insecure and alone, which is a terrible but common reality in marriage. And and she's got this sense of foreboding and even paranoia, which may in fact turn out to be reality. And if you're in a position where you're struggling with some or all of those feelings, whether it's just an occasional thing or it's become the entrenched reality, surely there are some steps you can take. First of all, I'd say pray, right? God's big. He loves you. Uh, and, And work on the relationship with him, even if no other relationship is going well. All right, pray But secondly, in terms of your marriage, communication. You know, you've got to talk about these feelings and these issues. Now, I know some of us don't like talking about how we're feeling. I'm I'm one of them. But uh, one of the most vital and important aspects of any relationship is communication. We've just got to be honest with each other, even though being honest brings an element of risk. You know, what will the other person do with this information? I say I'm feeling lonely. What does Alison think? Well, why is he feeling, you know, she could think that, she could say, oh, no, no, you know, you don't know. There's an element of risk. But I reckon that maybe it's worth going home today and having a marital health check. You know, how, how are you going, honey? Having an open and honest conversation where you ask one another, how are you going? Are there times when you feel this kind of way? Are there times when you don't feel loved or supported by me? Are you feeling lonely in our marriage? But if you're going to have that conversation, you've got to make sure you back it up with action. You've got to make a plan about how you're going to address those issues and how you're going to relieve those insecurities and feelings. You've got to work out some goals, work out some ways to begin to reconnect because the danger of not communicating and not reconnecting, of not dealing with one another carefully and properly is that you drive a wedge between you that will only become harder and harder to close over time. And far worse problems may well come than just frustration, loss and loneliness. Because you can only live with those things for so long before you start to breed discontentment where you begin to question the whole relationship and then from discontentment you breed resentment where you start to blame the other person thinking it's all their fault that the birds aren't singing and doing my hair and the sun isn't shining every day in our household. And then from that can come contempt for the other person or bitterness about being trapped in a loveless marriage. And the results of those are plain to see in the statistics we see all around us. Uh, The devastating rates which are only increasing in our community of domestic violence, of pornography, of adultery, of divorce. We have a 40% divorce rate. Uh, 25% of city workers report having had sex with someone at work in the office. That's shocking. Uh, and the, the domestic violence rates are way up. They're about double if you're living in a, a um, de facto relationship than if for marriage. That's horrible. And all of those things are a perversion of what God created in marriage and which the Song of Songs in general celebrates. They're all a perversion. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and answer the one question I was asked last week about the Bible and divorce because it's a very real issue not only in our community but also for many in our church. Some have been through it, some are thinking about it and and there's been terrible hurt in marriage and some bear the scars. And while there are complexities and it's an extremely sensitive personal issue, the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce is actually pretty straightforward. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to live out, but it's not hard to understand. There are four main passages if you want to do the thinking about it. Malachi chapter 2, Matthew 5, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, there are some other references, particularly God and his relationship with Israel, which he calls his wife in the Old Testament in books like Jeremiah, uh, where at one point he goes to write a divorce for his people, Israel. But you can think about that later. But those four main passages, Malachi chapter two ends up saying, I hate divorce, says the Lord. You want to know what God hates? He hates divorce. He thinks it's an abomination. Okay. He also hates in the same passage a man's covering himself with violence. Okay. You never hit your wife. Right. God hates them both. Matthew 5 and 19, Jesus, uh, one, and one Jesus just brings up the topic and the other one, some people come to him and say, you know, what's some good reasons we can get divorced? Yeah, we wanna leave our wives, you know? Is her being ugly enough for her to go? <laughs> what if we're just fighting all the time? What's what's a good reason, Jesus, that we could leave our marriage? And Jesus' answer is, don't. Right, what well, God has joined together, let not man put asunder, okay? Because when, when you were united in marriage, God made two people one new person, one new thing, and you must not break it. Although he does go on to say, if the other person has committed adultery they 've gone off and set up a sort of new marriage relationship with someone else it 's not you breaking the marriage when you get divorced you know they' they 've already done that, okay, and so in that circumstance you know you 're free but but they 've gone and they 've broken their vows uh, One Corinthians seven uh, has a special issue for Christians that is what if you become a Christian? after you get married like James and Katie did, but only one of you becomes a Christian and the other person can't handle it. What do you do then? Well, he says to the Christian, you've got to stick around. You've got to love your husband or your wife just like you said you would and like God has loved you. But if they leave, if they abandon you because they do not want to live with a Christian, you can't stop them going. You can't stop them going. Now, that's not to say that... um uh, you can't even get through things like adultery and things like that. I know marriages that have recovered from even from that. Nor is it to say there's not a place for separation. Uh, there is a place for that. I mean, if there is violence, you need to get out, particularly if your kids are in danger. Uh, call the police. That's an enforced separation, right? Get, get them locked up. Uh, but you, the Bible's teaching is clear. Don't get divorced. Stick at your marriage. Stick at your marriage. And so let's come back to the Song of Songs, and uh, and reflect on what is going to keep us going in a marriage. if we go into a marriage thinking divorce is not an option, how am I going to get through these problems and frustrations that I'm feeling now, and, and maybe even worse? What what is going to not just keep you going, but even start to restore and and build on and rebuild the relationship uh, when these things are the realities? And the answer the book comes to is in that section on true love we ended up with in chapter 8 and verses 6 and 7, which David so helpfully walked us through last week looking at um, all the different things that, that real true love uh, is like. And, and true love is the answer. But it's got absolutely nothing to do with the froth and bubbles feelings of this world, which are all about physical attraction and, and having the spark. Um, that's not true. Love, uh, sorry, that's not true love. Um, You know, having the spark, you know what that is? Hormones. (laughs) Hormones are really good. Uh, And they're doing what they're designed to do when you feel attraction and, and, you know, excited. But true love is something completely different, something so much more. It is a profound commitment to the good of the other person before yourself. That's what love is in the Bible. to to self-sacrifice, to generosity, and and it's all modelled on the very love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And that is the true sort of love which Song of Songs chapter 8 speaks of that is so permanent as to be as strong as death. That will persevere in all the hard times such that many waters cannot quench it nor rivers wash it away which is so powerful like a blazing fire and like a mighty flame and which is so, so precious, it is worth everything we have, in fact, more than we have. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for this love, it would be utterly spurned. It's the love of Jesus Christ for his church. It's the love that took him to his death for our sins. It is his love which which covers over our faults and bears with us in our weaknesses and which walks with us when we're tired and we're afraid and when we're lonely and when we're tempted and a love which holds us when we're weak and which will guard us right to the end into heaven. That is the thing that we need in our lives and which when we live it out ourselves will keep us going in our marriages In fact, we'll do more than keep us going. We'll utterly transform our marriages into the glorious examples that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5 and other places, uh, which point to the gospel uh, in every facet of them. And without understanding that the Song of Songs really does understand the trials and tribulations of real relationships, It's easy to dismiss what it says about true love as just sort of sickly, sweet sentimentality and just ignore everything it's got to say. Giggle and go, oh yeah, glad we spent some weeks reading some poetry. (laughs) Um, But Solomon does know and his song absolutely recognises the truth of relational life and that makes this section on true love so profound. And I just want to tease out two aspects of this love which I always end up with doing marriage preparation. We're doing marriage preparation with three different couples at the moment who are getting married here next few weeks. Um, And I end up all the marriage classes with God's keys to success in your marriage, which which are sort of elements of this true love. Uh, They capture something of what it entails. And they're summed up in two words, um, trust and forgiveness. Okay, and there's a flip side to both those things. Okay, uh, trust. Trust is vital for a marriage to work. Okay, husbands and wives have to trust each other if they're going to fully enjoy God's intentions and His good intentions for marriage. Okay, uh, it's also essential to trust that God has our best interests at heart in asking us to live His way and that He will care for us even when we fail each other. And we're going to fail each other. Alright. Now the opposite, the flip side of trust is trustworthiness. You have to be trustworthy. You are making serious promises. I am not leaving this relationship. In fact, I'm going to love and cherish you no matter what comes our way. And you have to be utterly trustworthy. Not just faithful sexually, you've got to do that, but you've got to be trustworthy in everything, and that enables the other person to trust you, and and that will build their desire to be trustworthy, and so that you'll trust them in everything. You are you are giving of yourselves wholly. So trust and trustworthiness, and then forgiveness, and that's flip side, which is repentance. Yeah, you know, for those who've got their gospel ears on. You know, I'm talking about repenting and believing yeah, at this point, right? Um, forgiveness. Forgiveness is essential because we will let each other down. We will never, even in the best of marriages, treat each other perfectly rightly because even as forgiven Christians, we remain sinners who are always going to battle with selfishness and with thoughtlessness and things like that. And while it's easy to say, oh, you should forgive them, <laughs> you know, True forgiveness is always costly. It hurts to forgive, it is a hard thing, it is the hardest thing to do. Think of what it costs God to forgive us. He didn't go, Yeah, it doesn't matter that you hate my guts and spit in my face. <laughs> Don't worry about it. What did it cost God to forgive us? His son. The life of his son. And yet he did everything that was necessary in order to hold out the offer of forgiveness and even to start to restore us and restore things between us. And he calls on us to forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. Colossians 3.13, other places. Forgiving is not necessarily forgetting. Okay, yeah, forgive and forget. No, that's not Bible. That's nonsense. You cannot forget some things, but you can forgive. Um, there may need to be changes and accountabilities put in place, particularly the greater the hurt that needs forgiving. But forgiveness does mean seeking to restore the relationship. It means driving towards reconciliation. Now, the flip side is repentance, okay? It's coming and it's making it a possible When you know you've done the wrong thing and you need forgiveness, you've got to come and say sorry. You've got to own up to it, face reality, that you suck, and say I, I've let you down. I I betrayed you. Whatever it is, in a small way, in a big way. Okay, because then there really can be true forgiveness and reconciliation. But forgiveness is a generous gift from one person to another uh, that doesn't seek to make them pay for what they've done. That's called revenge, and that's why it's so costly. But there you go, that's God's keys to success in marriage when there's frustration, pain, loneliness and worse. They are are two of the hallmarks of the true love that the Song of Solomon in the end says that we all need. True love which is so far beyond the drivel we hear from the romance novels and fairy tales which are just a pathetic shadow of the true love that God shows us and which he calls for us to show in our relationships and all our relationships in our friendships, in our family lives, in our communities, in our church and particularly in our marriages. Well, here endeth the song of songs. Let me pray. Father, we know that reality in our relationships is sometimes very, very difficult that there's pain, hurt, betrayal, loneliness and so many other things that we face, some of us, day to day. We ask, please, for your mercy and grace on those who are struggling with those things right now, that you might help them to look to your love, that you might help them to forgive and you might help them to start to restore things where it's possible. For those who've messed all this up in the past, we pray for your special grace. We pray that they might know that you are a God who forgives and uh, that you welcome people with open arms back into your families because you have paid the price in your son. We thank you for that mercy that brings us all home uh, when we want that. We thank you for Jesus, our King, and we pray that we might model our lives in all of their complex relationships on your love for us, that you might teach us to both trust and to forgive, to be trustworthy and repentant. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.